I have enjoyed studying these Advent sermons. Um, it's different for me. Uh, over the last year, of course, you know, we've, we've pretty much been in books of the Bible. We finished up Isaiah and then basically jumped right into Matthew. So uh, most of my weeks, the, the good, a good portion of my time, I spend studying um, and usually one passage after another. And I love that. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way most of the time. Um, but over these last couple weeks and for a couple more, it's uh, been a little bit more topical. And I've been able to jump around a little bit more, which is not my comfort zone. So you may see that as I speak and as I preach. But that's okay because it's good as we've looked at, at these topics. Um, hope, of course. Uh, Fred Thompson gave us a great message from Psalm 23 that had to do with hope and then love. Looked at God's love last week and now joy. And uh, we, we see this today as our theme, Advent brings joy. Hope, love, joy, and peace. And of course, as represented by the white candle at the middle of the Advent wreath, it all points to Christ. It all points to Christ and his coming. And we experience these things, hope, love, joy, and peace because of Christ's advent. We've seen the hope of expectation and waiting, waiting for the promised Messiah, waiting for the curse to be eradicated, waiting for deliverance as God's people were. Uh, Christ brought great hope to the people who believed on him in his day, and we know he does just the same now. Love, we saw last week, is from God, and God is love. And the greatest demonstration of God's faithful and benevolent love was the sending, the coming of his son, Jesus Christ, uh, to the earth to save us. And that brings us, of course, to joy. Joy is a great Christmas theme. We've, we've sung this morning, joy to the world. Uh, we've sung, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the people rejoice. We've read from Luke 2, where the shepherds announced uh, an announcement that would have started as fearful, of course, seeing an angel of God appear to you with all the, the glory that would accompany that would startle anyone, especially a lowly shepherd simply doing his work by night. Um, but we read, again, in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And of course, the angel gives a reason for that news, that it would be joyful because, because it is this, unto you is born this day a Savior, which is Christ. Christ, of course, meaning Messiah, the anointed one, Redeemer, the ruler, and King, and Deliverer. God, in the God-man, came that day. He was born that day in Bethlehem. That is what brought good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. And why? Because a Savior was born that day. The, the news brought joy then, and it brings us joy now as well. Joy in deliverance. Joy in salvation. Joy in peace. Joy in comfort. Joy in redemption. Joy in righteousness. Uh, in one way, we could say that everything that Christ brought was with joy and for joy. So the question, at least at the beginning here today, is this. What is joy? 
Well, simply put, if you, uh, if you go right to the definition of the words that are used in Scripture for joy, it's the experience of great delight or happiness. Now, there's a lot of ways to think about joy. Uh, one of the popular ones used for many years is to think about uh, that acrostic, J-O-Y, Jesus, others, and yourself. And that's a good pattern for how to think about life and uh, maybe how to get joy in some sense but that doesn't necessarily define what joy is. Uh, we spend a lot of time trying to compare and contrast joy and happiness. Maybe we say happiness is an emotion while joy is above the emotions or joy is, is better than emotions. But oftentimes we get into semantics when we talk about that and our definition of joy might be the same as somebody else's definition of happiness. So sometimes we just end up talking past one another. But when the Bible speaks of joy and happiness, it seems to speak of an experience and an action more than just a feeling. For instance, we are told in one place in, in 1 Thessalonians, for instance, to rejoice. That is, there is a sense in which we can choose to enact joy, to live out joy. In my study this week, I came across something interesting that when, when uh, Bible translators are working and they're working in a new language, many languages don't have uh, a word for happiness and a word for joy like we do in English. A lot of times they only have a word that maybe means happiness, but when it comes to joy, the way they have to translate that is to, to put it into an idiom, to say something like, my heart is dancing or my heart shouts. And maybe that's a good way to look, look at it. The kind of joy and rejoicing that comes with Advent is more than just a little shot in the arm of happiness or emotion. It's also a state of being or a state of action. We are joyful and we can rejoice because of what Christ has done. Because of Christ, because of Advent, my heart can sing. And my heart can shout. And my heart, even though I can't dance on the outside, my heart can dance on the inside because of what Christ has done. We're going to look at joy in three different uh, facets or three different little ways for a few minutes this morning. We'll see joy as maybe an inner experience. We'll see joy as a pursuit. And we'll see joy as an action or a response. We'll see joy as enduring, we'll see it as present, and we'll see it as future. We'll see joy being brought to us, we'll see joy being modeled for us, and we'll see joy being promised to us. But here's the main idea for this morning. The coming of Jesus brought good news of great joy. Joy is to know and experience pure delight and full, enduring, and eternal joy can be had because of Jesus Christ. Let's go to prayer before we jump right in to our main portion of the message. Father, thank you. Thank you for this joy. I pray that as we do a little survey of your scripture today, as we, as we look at these, uh, these examples of joy that you would bring it to life in our life, light to in our life, that we would be able to rejoice, to have this fullness of joy, this experience of joy, and to rest in this promise 
of joy as Jesus brought to us. Teach us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first thing we see is that Jesus brings fullness of joy. Jesus brings fullness of joy. Now, when I picture Christ from the scriptures, with all the evidence in scripture that we have of him, I picture, of course, a righteous man, a devout man, but I also picture a man with a lot of joy, a man whose heart was full and who was continually satisfied and delighting in his father and the work that his father sent him to do. Now, that's not to say that Jesus never experienced times where emotionally he was downtrodden or less than joyful. Certainly, he wept when Lazarus died. Certainly, he mourned for the wayward children of Israel, and certainly he was grieved in spirit to the point of sweating great drops of blood in the garden before his arrest and crucifixion. And we must not remember, as Isaiah 53 put it, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And it goes on a little bit later to say, surely he has borne our grief. So Jesus was acquainted with suffering and sorrows, yet he was a joyful man. Uh, at the end of Isaiah 53, at the end of that great prophetic chapter, it also says of him that out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Satisfied. Think of it this way. Jesus always had joy and satisfaction looking to the purpose of his coming. There was a true joy, a full joy, and that's the kind of, of joy that he desired and desires for his followers to carry with them also. I want to look first at the Gospel of John 15, verse number 11. Gospel of John, verse 15, or chapter 15, verse number 11. And the verse specifically says, These things have I spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. Now, that is a, an amazing statement. Uh, Jesus spoke those things so that he could give the listeners his joy and that their joy would be full. So we can say, at least in a basic sense, that Jesus desires that his followers would have full joy, the kind of joy that he has. But what exactly is he speaking about here? When he says, these things have I spoken, what does he mean by these things? Well, if you know John 15, and you can read the context uh, now or later, you know that the first section, these first 11 verses, are all about abiding in Christ or remaining in Christ. And he uses analogy from the world of agriculture, from the prevailing agriculture of that place and time, the grape vineyard. This past fall, for the first time, uh, I got to go, along with many of you, to help Dennis and Liz with their grape harvest. And that was the first time I had ever been around any grapes or any vineyard at all, but Jesus' disciples would have seen them quite often. They would have seen them as they were walking through the countryside. They would have seen them constantly as they traveled along on their journeys. 
the imagery of a grape on a vine and a vine connected to that big sturdy branch, drawing moisture and nutrients from the branch, surviving and living and growing on that vine, as long as that relationship lasted, the branches and the grapes thrived. Jesus' disciples knew that imagery. And that's what he tells his, his disciples. Abiding in him, we could boil it down, is the key to life. It's the key to bearing fruit. It's the key to a relationship with God the Father. And then he says, these things have I spoken to you, not to give you a stumbling block, not to make you nervous, but these things have I spoken to you that your joy may be full. So whatever is wrapped up in abiding in Christ, and we can tell that by the scriptures, <coughs> which includes following him, <coughs> loving him, and obeying him, and loving others as well, whatever is wrapped up in abiding in Christ is meant to produce fullness of joy as at least one of its fruits. Now, what about that fullness of joy? We've seen that word filling many times before. We've seen it a lot in Matthew. It's the same word that in Matthew is usually translated as fulfill or accomplish. And that means to make complete or to bring to fruition. Uh, maybe uh, to broaden it out a little bit, it means to bring to its intended purpose. And in this case, Jesus isn't speaking of, of a scripture from the Old Testament being fulfilled or made complete. He's speaking of our joy. That is, when we abide in Jesus Christ, like the branch remains on the vine, or the vine remains on the branch, uh, got that backwards, when the, the, uh, the branch remains on the vine, that is when our joy is filled up, is complete, and it's brought to its intended purpose, which leads us to make a major observation. God desires for us as his people to have joy. He wants us to have joy. I believe that God gets glory when his people are joyful and satisfied in him and what he's given us and given us to do. And I think that's just what Jesus is speaking about there in John 15. I've told you these things, all of this about abiding in me, following me, I've told you these things so that you will have full joy. And he also goes on to speak about it in a similar way in John 17. So you can turn there if you want to John 17, specifically verse 13, where Jesus says this, now I am coming to you, he's speaking in prayer to his father, now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. For context, John 17 is Jesus' great prayer to the Father. Some call it his great high priestly prayer. Some call it uh, his, his, the true Lord's prayer, uh, as it were. And we get a little glimpse into the relationship between Father and Son, which is something remarkable because that relationship has existed from eternity past. And here there's communication from Jesus to the Father, and he's praying about his disciples, and he says, I'm coming to you, Father, 
and I speak these things in the world, and he gives that same reason as he did in John 15, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus had prayed just a few sentences earlier, while I was with them in the world, I kept them, but now I'm coming to you. He's praying, of course, uh, concerning his departure, which was soon at hand, both in his death and ultimately in his ascension. And one of Jesus' main desires in his leaving is that his disciples continue to have joy, the kind of joy that Jesus has. He uses that exact same word for filling or fullness, bringing to its intended purpose. Jesus prayed for his disciples to have true and full, and we could say Christ-like joy. Now think of this as we think of it compared with the emptiness that exists in the world. Jesus speaks of this joy having a fullness or a filling, and certainly there is an emptiness when it comes to joy. But this is his prayer and his desire, that fullness of joy, lasting joy would come to his disciples. If you ever get the idea that God intends for your life to be morose or melancholy or depressed or anxious or, or nervous or paranoid or just sad, look at Jesus. He probably was the most joyful man who ever lived and not because of lack of trouble. He expressed that divine joy and a desire that his followers would have the same joy. Jesus' coming brings joy because Jesus has and desires that we would have that fullness of joy. Secondly, we see that not only does Jesus bring joy, but also Jesus models joy. And I've uh, put it that he models enduring joy. We mentioned Isaiah 53 in the last section, how Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, yet out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. In other words, there was a goal at hand. There was a purpose for his suffering. There was, you could say, a prize to be won, a redemption to be secured. And that goal, that, that light at the end of the tunnel of Jesus' grief, he held on to it, and he would be satisfied. We go on to read in Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. His work would make many to be counted as righteous, and he would bear our sins. That ties in to what we saw last week really in two ways. We alluded back to John the Baptist, how he would go before the Lord, and one of the things that the Lord would bring was the forgiveness of sin. And we also saw in 1 John 4, where the very demonstration of God's love is most clear and evident in Jesus' coming, which accomplished two things, if you remember. One, it brought life, and two, it brought propitiation from sins. Propitiation, meaning atonement, satisfaction, forgiveness. 
We can't talk about Jesus' life and work and death without talking about this forgiveness of sins. It was something he did both in his living, and he was questioned for that severely, but mostly he did it in his dying. Jesus' forgiveness, it shows God's love, and it also shows joy. Now, it brings us joy, no doubt, but I want to focus on the other fact, that just like love, which was in God first and comes from God, so it is with joy. And I, was, I thought this week of Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, which is a pretty familiar passage. You might want to turn there. Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This passage speaks of a joy that Jesus had set before him. In other words, there's that goal again. There's that light at the end of the tunnel. It was always before him. Now, Hebrews 12 starts with the word, therefore, and uh, it's as cliche, but it's memorable and helpful to say that whenever it comes to Bible study, you need to know what the therefore is there for. So for the context of this passage, you obviously have to go to Hebrews 11. And uh, what is Hebrews 11 all about? It's all about faith. And uh, sometimes it's called the, the hall of faith. And it's a great chapter about faith. It begins by telling us what faith is, and then it goes on to describe faith by giving examples of faithful men and women, men and women who trusted, followed, and even gave their lives to God because of the promises that he had made to them. And God's promises to these people, for many of them, were not seen fully in their lifetime. It says they died in faith, not having yet received the promise. But the amazing thing is, is many of those promises have now come to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. So when we come to chapter 12 and it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance. These men and women serve as examples of faith and faithfulness, and we're called to run as they were. The author of Hebrews uses that analogy from this time, athletics, setting our life before us as a race and calls us to run with endurance. Not a sprint where we'll get tuckered out and have to sit down, and not a meandering either where we're just aimlessly wandering, but a race, a race which we run intentionally and one which we hope to finish faithfully. Now, the saints of old, and many of them, are our examples as given in Scripture, but they are not our chief example. There's one chief example, the example that the author of Hebrews points to in the entire book. Uh, all throughout Hebrews, the, the theme is Christ is better. And in this case, although we have great examples in the faithful gone before, our best example 
is Christ himself. And he brings us to that in Hebrews 12 too, where he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He points us to Jesus, uh, the author and finisher of our faith, as the old King James put it. That is, he's the designer of our faith, the originator of our faith, and also the sustainer of our faith and the end of our faith. And what is the example that Jesus gives us? Well, Jesus too ran his life, as it were, a race with an expected end, with a goal. And that end was his death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension back to the Father in victory. And he ran that race with endurance, and he ran it with joy. He says, for the joy that was set before him. Just like Isaiah says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus had the joyful cause of his sufferings always ahead of him. He had enduring joy even through the worst imaginable human suffering. Enduring joy. I think that's why James, uh, who's the half-brother of our Lord, can say it like this in his letter. Count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And we could read on, uh, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be full and entire, wanting nothing. But here's the idea. James says, not only can we have joy in suffering, but we ought to count it as joy when we suffer, because there is a good and a hopeful end that it is working toward. Jesus has already prayed, we read in John 17, that we can have the kind of joy that he has. And that often includes joy in and through suffering. Because we know there's a grand and great purpose of the sovereign and wise Lord. And in God's good time, he is working all things for good. Jesus models enduring joy. Lastly, Jesus secures eternal joy. Our final scripture for today is in 1 Peter chapter number 3. And this passage also includes the theme of trials. Not trying to drag you down into the gutter today. Maybe you're already there by yourself and you didn't need any help from me but I want to show you what is there because we've all been there or will be soon. Peter is writing, of course, to the saints, encouraging them to, to consider their final salvation. That is the aspect of salvation in which we are fully and finally saved from this world and the sin and the curse of it. It's really eternal life, uh, the new heaven, the new earth, uh, that perfect existence that was intended from the beginning, but interrupted by sin and the curse. And Peter, as he writes, says this. Fi- uh, excuse me, in the wrong place. First Peter 3, I'll get there eventually. My apologies. 
a technological glitch. First uh, Peter, I said chapter three, that's why. Chapter one, verse three. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us uh, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, yet you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. It's interesting because Peter is clearly speaking in a big way of, of future things. He's speaking about an inheritance that we haven't fully received. He's speaking of the last time. He's speaking of eternal life. He's speaking of, of a salvation which is yet to be fully revealed. Yet he, he writes in a way that sounds like all these things are present possessions. He writes, in this you rejoice. That is right now. We rejoice because of our full salvation, even though we haven't received the end of it yet. We're still in this earth. We're still waiting for that coming day. Yet, he says, you rejoice now. There is a present joy, even though, as he says, if it's necessary, we've been grieved by various trials. Now, just like James, Peter says these trials have an intended purpose. They have an intended purpose. It says in verse number uh, six, though now for a little while, if you've been grieved by various trials, so that, verse seven, the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is, these trials and the joy that accompanies them work themselves up into praise and honor and glory for Christ. And then Peter says something remarkable in verses 8 and 9. Uh, I think these two verses are probably some of the sweetest and dearest little portions of Scripture to me in all the Bible. And maybe that doesn't mean much to you, but I'm just telling you how I feel. He says in verses 8 and 9, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There is that great joy, that joy that endures, that joy that Jesus has prayed for us to have. 
that joy that comes when we abide in Christ. And it comes, as Peter puts it here, when we love the one that we've never seen. Now, there is special meaning for Advent in those words. We love Jesus, at least I hope you do. We love him, though we've never seen him. But think about this. Peter had seen him. Peter had walked with him. Peter had learned from him, seen the miracles, heard the teaching. Peter had spent time with Jesus. Peter had seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he knew. He knew it was worth it. It was worth it to love and trust this Jesus. It was worth it to, though we haven't seen him, it was worth it to, though we are tested by trials, it was worth it to rejoice with inexpressible joy. Think of it this way. Jesus did come. He's not here now. He is gone. He has left us the comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with us and to to guide us as his followers. But leaving, listen, was part of the promise. The end of his first advent is of great importance for his second advent. He said in John 14, uh, verses 2 and 3. Sorry about the slides. Uh, He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And listen to this. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. That might be the most uh, poignant and dripping conditional clause in all of scripture. Jesus says, if I go, I will come again. If I go, I will come again. Jesus did go, just as he said. He did ascend to his Father. He is now, even now, preparing a room in the Father's house for his followers. And since he is gone, we know that promise. He will come again. So yes, we love and we trust and we rejoice back to joy in the one we've never seen, but it's not for nothing. The hope that is set before us is that he is coming again and that he will, uh, that we will be with him. There is that full and final promise of salvation that we will experience. There that final inheritance that Peter talks about here, but because it's a promise of of God, of Jesus himself, the promise is as good as accomplished, which means now we can rejoice with unspeakable joy. Or as I memorized it as a child, with joy unspeakable and full of glory. At the beginning, we said that sometimes joy can't really be defined as much as it's experienced Sometimes it can only be described in idioms, like a full heart or a dancing spirit. Well, I think Peter uh, gives us just that here when he says that it's joy that is inexpressible. You can't really describe that. Inexpressible joy filled with glory. Peter uses words 
but I don't think he really even understood the fullness of what he was trying to, uh, to, to relay to us. And I don't think we could put it any better except to say it's remarkable. It's a wonderful thing. It's an amazing joy, the kind of joy that Christ had, the kind of joy that we too can have when we abide in him, we follow him, when we love and trust the one, even though we've never seen him, because his promises are good and true. Advent brings joy because Advent brings Jesus Christ who promises and displays fullness of joy. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we can't describe it. The kind of of joy that, that comes from knowing you and following you and trusting you, we can't describe it. It is. It's inexpressible. It's full of glory. Lord, I pray that if there is a person here who has not experienced that full joy that comes only by knowing you, today, Lord, may you grip their heart by the Holy Spirit. May you show them this way of entrance into your kingdom by faith. May you show them that that full joy that you have, that you had even while walking through suffering, and that you prayed and promised that we, your followers, would have as well. Lord, I have seen it, and I thank you for it. Your coming brought great joy, and it brings great joy, a joy that endures through this life. Lord, may we exhibit that joy, that fullness of joy in a world which is rather empty. May it be part of your filling work to bring fullness of joy to new people who have not yet come to know you. And Lord, for those of us who have walked with you for some time, maybe for many years, maybe maybe for a lifetime, Lord, may we not lose that wonder that Peter spoke about, that though we've never seen you yet, we rejoice with the inexpressible joy that is filled with glory. And we love you because you first loved us. May you receive all the glory today and the honor that's due to your name. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you've done. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us. Thank you, Father, for being a wonderful and faithful God. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.